Welcome to the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, we'll be talking about eyewitness testimony and accuracy. For centuries, eyewitness testimony has played a significant role in securing convictions. But it's not just recent criticism that has the legal system looking to reform eyewitness identification procedures. Thucydides, who was an ancient Greek historian, noted the unreliability of eyewitnesses in his writings in the 5th century BCE. It wasn't until, though, about the 1900s that psychologists began questioning the validity of eyewitness testimony and the procedures used to elicit those identifications. Alfred Binet was a huge proponent of the scientific study of testimony based on eyewitness observation, believing that witnesses could be biased by suggestive questioning techniques. Hugo Munsterberg was also critical of eyewitness testimony, closely examining the relationship between eyewitness certainty and accuracy. Most psychologists didn't get on board the scrutiny train until about 1970, when experimental research was initiated to explore the validity of eyewitness testimony and identification. Today, there's a lot of interest in this topic. DNA techniques have become much more sophisticated over the last 20 years, providing more objective evidence for many cases that hinged on eyewitness testimony. In fact, 362 convictions have been overturned by DNA evidence since 1989, and 70% of those wrongful convictions involved faulty eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony is the main source of evidence in over 20% of all cases, but 75% of false convictions involve inaccurate eyewitness statements. Errors in eyewitness identifications are responsible for more wrongful convictions than all other cases combined. So why, given all of these troubling facts, does eyewitness testimony still have such a powerful effect on convictions? In research conducted in the 1970s on eyewitness recall and memory, Robert Buckout looked at the phenomenon of unconscious transference. This refers to how memories are made related to an event that aren't related to the actual event. For example, if you're robbed or assaulted and the perpetrator looks like someone you know or have encountered on a daily basis, you may incorrectly identify that person as the perpetrator. In his research, Buckout staged a mock assault in front of his students. After seven weeks, he asked the students to pick the perpetrator from a photographic lineup of six individuals. 60% of the students incorrectly identified the perpetrator. Of those 60%, two-thirds incorrectly chose someone who had been present but not involved in the assault. Those people had seen a familiar face and transferred familiarity to the crime itself instead of correctly remembering them as a bystander. There are many factors, including unconscious transference, that can affect the reliability of eyewitness identification. These psychological factors include stress, physical condition of the witness, suggestive identification procedures, and conformity. If juries are not aware of these factors, they will often change their verdict from not guilty to guilty based solely on the introduction of a confident and credible eyewitness. 
Research specifically looking at jury awareness confirmed the belief that juries were insensitive to many of the factors that influence eyewitness memory. These factors included disguise of the robber, weapon presence, violence, retention interval, mugshot search, lineup instructions, lineup size, similarity of lineup members, voice samples, and witness confidence. These factors can distort eyewitness testimony, and unawareness of them on the part of the jury justifies the need for admitting expert psychological testimony on eyewitness identifications to assist jurors in understanding these issues. Many eyewitnesses truly believe what they saw and aren't purposefully falsifying their testimony. But how does that happen? If you're 100% certain you saw someone and identify them later, how could you be wrong? We as humans make loads of perceptual errors all the time. The process our brains go through when acquiring new information, keeping it in our memories, and then using that information in the future includes three important steps. Encoding, storage, and retrieval. Within these steps, there are many opportunities for our brains to mess up and present us with incorrect information without us ever being conscious of the transgression. Encoding is the first step. This is where we're acquiring new information. There are a lot of environmental and situational variables that can affect how information is encoded. If we only witness something very briefly, it's not always fully encoded. The complexity of the information can also affect the encoding process. And as complexity increases, there's more opportunity to incorrectly recall information. But it's not a perfectly linear relationship. Some aspects of the information will still be recalled correctly. And that can change from person to person. Stress is also something that can alter encoding. Stress is problematic for encoding, where information can be encoded incompletely or altogether inaccurately. It's a good application of the Yerkes-Dodson law and a good example of a curvilinear effect. There are low levels of stress that heighten alertness and can improve performance on a task, but more stress doesn't necessarily mean better performance. At a certain level of stress, less learning occurs and performance diminishes. The sweet spot differs for everyone. Some refer to it as eustress, and it usually maxes out at a mild level of stress, where it's not really distracting enough to disrupt accuracy. There are also individual differences that can affect encoding. If we have more experience perceiving different kinds of stimuli, we're more likely to notice details of it better. For example, if you're a gun expert and you hear someone being shot, you may be able to accurately identify the caliber of the gun just by the sound, compared to someone who's not a gun expert. We're also highly affected by our expectations. We tend to see what we expect to see, which for some people can alter their memory of an event a lot more than others. The next step is storage, the second step to building memory. Research has shown that memory loss is very rapid for witnessed events. In one study, participants were shown a film of an armed robbery and shooting. For those questioned one week later, 
There was 18% less memory information compared to individuals who were questioned immediately after viewing the film. Things that we learn after witnessing events can also alter the storage process. Giving an eyewitness pictures to look at of potential suspects can alter their capacity to recognize faces that they viewed before seeing the pictures. This new activity can interfere with the information they acquired during the crime itself. One study illuminated this phenomenon by introducing misleading information during questioning of participants. They were shown a video of a car accident, and during follow-up questioning, they were given false information about a barn, though no barn was present in the video. One week later, 17% of participants reported seeing a barn in the film. This misleading information became conflated with their memory of the video. They were stored together. The final step is retrieval, when we recall information from our memory store. Recall is also influenced by a lot of factors, including the types of questions eyewitnesses are asked. One study showed that the type of language you use in questioning can affect the recall of information witnessed. Participants were shown a video of a car crash and asked a follow-up question about how fast they thought the cars were going. One group was asked how fast they were going when they smashed into each other. The other group was asked how fast the cars were going when the cars contacted each other. Those who were in the smashed group reported the cars were going about 40 miles an hour on average, whereas the contacted group reported the cars were going about 32 miles an hour on average. This language has certain connotations and can alter the way we retrieve and interpret a memory. There are also estimator variables that can affect our memories and the processing of information. Estimator variables include cross-race versus within-race identifications, fatigues, lighting, and stress. Cross-race identification occurs when people are less accurate in their identification of subjects of another race compared to their own race. Meta-analytic research in this area has shown that the chance of mistaken identification is 1.5 times greater in other race than in same race conditions. Witnesses were also 1.4 times more likely to correctly identify a previously seen own race face as they were to identify an other race face. They were also more than 2.2 times as likely to accurately categorize own race faces as new versus previously seen, compared to accurately categorizing other race faces. Stress is another powerful estimator variable. Research shows that increased violence of the crime leads to decreased accuracy and recall of details about the crime, though this is not a consistent finding. Another estimator variable is the weapon effect, or weapon focus, where eyewitnesses pay more visual attention to a perpetrator's weapon during the crime, and thus less attention on their face. Research has corroborated the theory that focus on a weapon during a crime will reduce the witness's ability to later recall details about the crime or recognition of the perpetrator. The research has extended beyond just weapons, though, to include any surprising object or event that draws attention away from the perpetrator during the crime, regardless of whether that object is a threat or not. Another estimator variable is the duration a witness has to view the perpetrator. 
Research has supported the theory that the longer someone has to view a perpetrator, the more ability they have in identifying that person later. Specifically, when given 45 seconds to view someone versus 12 seconds, the percentage of correct identifications increased from 32% to 90%, and correct rejections similarly increased from 15% to 59%. Though it is important to note in this particular study that the time between viewing and recall affected the results when more time between viewing the crime and identifying the perpetrator led to fewer correct identifications. Disguises can also diminish the likelihood of accurate recognition. Studies testing this estimator variable found perpetrators were less accurately identified when they were disguised. Specifically, 45% of participants identified the perpetrator if they didn't wear a hat during the crime, and only 27% identified them if they did wear a hat during the crime. Finally, the last estimator variable we'll cover today has to do with the state of the witness at the time of the crime. Now, I don't want to come off as victim blaming with this discussion, but it's an important limitation for accuracy. Intoxication of the witness, whether from drugs or alcohol, makes it less likely that they will make an accurate identification later on. Studies have shown that alcohol intoxication while witnessing an event was associated with a lower rate of correct identifications when the level of arousal was low during the event. Higher blood alcohol content levels are associated with higher likelihood of false identification compared to lower blood alcohol content levels. But this result was only found in situations where the suspect was shown along with fillers. This does not mean that witnesses don't accurately remember a crime happening to them. For example, we wouldn't use this to discount witness accounts of being sexually assaulted. It would, however, affect confidence in their perpetrator identification. Eyewitness testimony is not just affected by individual differences in processing and environmental alterations, but also by how the police handle the eyewitness themselves. These are considered system variables. These types of variables include how the police interview a witness and how they instruct witnesses prior to viewing a lineup. Cognitive interviews are a systematic way for police to attain an accurate eyewitness statement. It's a way to gain more knowledge and draw out more detail from eyewitnesses without interrupting them or introducing false information into their memory of the crime. It's a simple exchange of information between the witness and interviewer through effective communication techniques. The interviewer can use open-ended questions to elicit more detail, but the interviewer should be guided by the witness, not the other way around. This can be very helpful as a tool if it's used correctly. Lineups, whether they are photo or in-person, can pose a lot of problems for eyewitnesses. The general definition of a lineup is an array of individuals that includes a suspect and fillers, or distractions, people who may share similar characteristics as the perpetrator but are not the prime target. Witnesses are asked to identify the suspect from this array. There are a lot of issues, both conscious and unconscious, that can affect the outcome of a lineup. It's incredibly easy to bias the witness through verbal cues body language, or even encouraging words. In lineup situations, the witness and the police have the same goal, to identify the target. 
the witness wants to help find the right person, and the police want to arrest someone for the crime. Victims of crimes are especially sensitive to feedback they receive when they are making an identification, so even if investigators are giving off nonverbal or unconscious hints at who they think should be identified by the witness, the witness is going to pick up on that. Because there are many opportunities to introduce bias in a lineup situation, most researchers and criminal justice professionals believe all lineups should be double-blind, where the person administering the lineup doesn't know where in the lineup the suspect is. This way, there's no chance that an investigator will unknowingly bias a witness toward their unintended target. Typically, picture lineups are presented all at once, and there are usually six people presented on a single page. In-person lineups have all people stand in a single line. This is referred to as simultaneous presentation. In this condition, witnesses tend to identify the person who most looks like the culprit relative to the other individuals present in the lineup. This can be especially problematic when the perpetrator isn't even in the lineup. Maybe police picked someone up in the vicinity who fit the description of the perpetrator and presented them with five other people of similar description. This is an issue, especially if the witnesses feel pressured to choose someone out of the lineup. Unfortunately, there are often still positive identifications in this case because of the relative judgment process. The witness chooses the person who looks most like the perpetrator out of the group, even if the perpetrator isn't present. So what about presenting them sequentially, one at a time? In this scenario, witnesses are comparing each person to their memory of the perpetrator, deciding whether any person in the lineup is the individual they saw commit the crime. This is an absolute judgment process compared to the relative process with a simultaneous lineup. The sequential process decreases the likelihood that an eyewitness will make a relative judgment when choosing someone from that lineup. Meta-analytic research corroborates this notion that sequential lineups are associated with lower misidentification rates. Though characteristics of the fillers used in the lineup can have a large effect on whether an identification will be made. If fillers do not resemble the description of the suspect, and the target does, the target's more likely to be misidentified when they are not in fact the perpetrator of the crime. Other characteristics of lineups that can increase the likelihood of positive identification include foil bias, instruction bias, and presentation bias. Foil is just another word for filler, and foil bias refers to the heterogeneity of the lineup. So bias exists when lineups don't contain fillers who match the description of the perpetrator as given by the witness and vary on characteristics not given in the witness description. This has been demonstrated throughout the literature where biased fillers increase the rate of false eyewitness identifications. Even the size of the lineup can negatively impact accurate identification, specifically when they contain too few people. Though this is only true for small lineups, as lineup size increases, the accuracy of identification doesn't change. Instruction bias refers to the instructions administered to witnesses prior to viewing any lineup. Any instruction from police that infers the suspect is definitely in the lineup introduces bias and increases the rate of false identification. Presentation bias refers to the way people in the lineup are presented to the witness. 
As discussed previously, research supports the use of sequential lineups as they are associated with fewer false identifications compared to simultaneous lineups. So where do we stand? Well, in the United States, courts have established and adopted recommendations for determining reliability of an identification. Back in the 1970s, five factors were established to determine reliability, including the witness's opportunity to view the criminal during the crime, the length of the time between the crime and identification, the level of certainty demonstrated by the witness at the identification, the accuracy of the witness's prior description of the suspect, and the witness's degree of attention during the crime. This seems a step in the right direction at the time. However, these criteria were established without consultation of any psychological experts. Research into the criteria has actually shown only two of the factors are related to accuracy of identification, the opportunity to observe and the length of retention intervals. Further research showed that even those two factors can be influenced by a number of other variables, including race and stress, making them difficult to use to establish accuracy without introducing doubt. In the 1990s, the Justice Department adopted recommendations based on information from the Innocence Project detailing statistics about eyewitness testimony being responsible for a number of false identifications. The recommendations include not using leading questions and sticking to open-ended inquiries, instructing witnesses viewing a lineup that the perpetrator may or may not be present, instructing investigators to select fillers for a lineup who generally fit the witness's description of the perpetrator, and instructing investigators to record a witness's own words of how sure they were about the identification they made. Many states in the years since have adopted reforms to improve their identification procedures and reduce the number of false identifications. Forensic psychologists play a big role in the education of police investigators and judges about the limitations of eyewitness testimony and proper procedures for obtaining reliable and accurate information from a witness. We've come a long way, but there are still people in jail today based on faulty identifications and poor investigative procedures. The hope is that the dissemination of knowledge and education by forensic psychologists will help prevent witness biases and false identifications from happening in the first place. But until then, we can help in the fight to free those who have been unjustly incarcerated. Visit the Innocence Project for more information about the initiatives to free innocent people from unjust imprisonment and the reforms that they're fighting for to prevent future wrongful convictions at innocenceproject.org. Thank you for listening to episode 11. Next week, we'll talk about false confessions, one of my most favorite topics. You can listen to The Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Hit that subscribe link so you can have access to the newest episodes right when they come out. You can find me on Instagram at the Forensic Files Pod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is the Forensic Files Pod at gmail.com. Please leave a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, so more amazing people like you can find this podcast. 
All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in the episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young. <laughs>